Our scripture passage this morning will be in Luke 17, verses 11 through 37. So turn there with me. Now on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thank you, Mary Beth. This morning, we continue our sermon series in Luke. And most of you probably didn't realize this, but today marks... Our 11th month anniversary through the Gospel of Luke. And so we've been here for 11 months, thought about getting a cake for our picnic um, after the service this morning, but thought we would do that maybe on the year um, anniversary of this sermon series in Luke. But we're getting through this uh, slowly, but surely. And so um, our plan, I believe, and so don't hold me to this, is that we will go through Luke probably to the end of this year. So December the 29th, I believe, in all likelihood, will be our last sermon in this sermon series on Luke. So we're getting there uh, and plodding along little by little by little. But, but one of the reasons, if you've forgotten 11 months into this, like why we are going through this particular gospel is because of a little sentence at the very bottom of your handout there. Think it's in italics there. Let me read it for you, for those of you who do not have a handout. It says this, Cross Fellowship Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. So those those two little words, or really three little words there, in the middle of that sentence, by making disciples. Making disciples, that's, that's our mission as a church. That's not a mission that we just thought up. That's a mission that Jesus gave us as a church corporately, but also as Christians individually, that the mission of our lives, the mission of this particular church, the mission of every local church in existence is to make disciples. And and this is one of the reasons then that we've been preaching through Luke for the last 11 months. It's because of, of all the books in the Bible that Jesus explains what it looks like and and what it means to live as a disciple of his, to live as a follower of his, to live as a, a, a citizen of his kingdom. Of all the books in the Bible, this is one of the most clearest explanations and teachings that Jesus gives 
when it comes to what it means and what it looks like to live as a disciple, a follower, a citizen of his kingdom. And, and we've seen this right over the last few months, particularly if you remember starting in chapter 9, verse 51. I know that was like forever ago, but Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. And he's been making his way to Jerusalem and making his way to Jerusalem and making his way to Jerusalem for the last eight chapters. And while he's making his way to Jerusalem, one of the things that he's doing on his way to Jerusalem is that he's got this ragtag of disciples that are following along with him. And so what's he doing along the way? He's teaching them, he's instructing them, he's explaining to them, hey guys, here's what it means to follow me. Here's what it means to be my disciple. Here's what it means to be a citizen in my kingdom. And and along the way, he's covered all sorts of topics. And they've had time to cover all sorts of topics. It's been a long journey. But he's covered, right? He's talked about how, how as a disciple relates to money over and over again. He's talked about how a disciple relates to and deals with anxiety. He's talked about how disciples are to pray and what the prayer life of a disciple is to look like. He talks about how disciples are, are to relate to one another and live in community with one another. He's talked about the personal relationships of disciples and how they relate to others. He's talked about the cost of being a disciple of his and the sacrifices that they're going to that are involved in in being a disciple of his. And topic after topic after topic after topic, he's been addressing, explaining, here's what it looks like. You want to continue to follow me, be my disciple. Here's here's what that entails and here's what that looks like. Well, this morning he's going to continue to explain that. That within our passage this morning, Jesus is going to continue to explain what it means to live as a disciple and a follower of his. And what we're specifically going to see within this passage is he's going to give two characteristics, two specific characteristics of what it means to be a disciple of his, what it means to live as a follower of of his. And so what I want us to do this morning is, is this. As we look at these two specific characteristics, I want us to, first and foremost, evaluate and to examine our own hearts and lives. And I mean that on two levels. One level is individually, personally. Like, look at these two characteristics. Where, where, where am I at? Where, where do I need to grow? Where, where, where do I need to continue to mature in? Where, where do I see God's grace and maturity in and, and celebrate that and all those things? So think about that on an individual level. But secondly, is to think about that on a corporate level. So often it's easy to hear sermons just individually on a personal level, but not also on a corporate level. And to think about what does this mean? What does this look like? Are, is the, are these characteristics manifested and do these characterize our church corporately, our discipleship communities, our lives together? Do these characteristics characterize us individually, but also us corporately as a church? So here's the first characteristic Jesus is going to mention when it comes to living as a disciple of his. It's this. You see it on your hand out there. Disciples of Jesus are grateful For the Lord's mercy. Disciples of Jesus are grateful for the Lord's mercy. This is what we see in the very first scene here, starting in verse 11. Look there with me again. Luke writes this He says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so then if you know the Old Testament law, all the way back in Leviticus, if a person had leprosy, then they were considered to be ritually unclean and and ritually impure. And so because of that, then they had to be separated from society. They had to be banished from society. And they literally had to live outside of the city or outside the village in which they were in. And so that's what's exactly going on with these 10 lepers here. They have leprosy. They've been separated, banished outside the the village here. And that's where they're living. And as they're living there, then they see Jesus, who I guess they've heard of and heard stories of, or however they know who Jesus is, they, they, they see him. And as they see him, then they begin to scream and they begin to raise their voices and they begin to cry out, Jesus Master, have mercy on us. In other words, they're desperate. They're helpless. They're they're hopeless. They're going to be banished and separated from friends, from family, from the worship of God and the people of God. 
They're going to be ostracized from society around them if they're not clean. And so they see the one and only person that can heal them and clean them. And they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Look how Jesus responds there in verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. At first you hear that and you think, God, Jesus, a little, he's not very sensitive. Like, that seems like a little harsh. I mean, these people are crying out for mercy and he's like, go, sh- go show yourself to the priest. Like, I don't want anything to do with you. Take it to the priest. Well, that's, that's not what he's doing at all. Instead, again, according to the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law stipulated that if a person with leprosy was healed of their leprosy, then they were supposed to go to the priest who would inspect them and make sure that they were healed and cleansed of their leprosy. And if, if that, in fact, did happen and they were healed of the leprosy, then the priest then would declare them now to be clean. And since the priest declared them to be clean, they can now be integrated back into, back into society. What's interesting, though, here is that Jesus tells these ten lepers to go to the priest before he even heals them. And what's even crazier than that is that they go. And what that means then is that that they they were so confident that Jesus was somehow, they don't know how, but somehow was going to heal them on the way to the the priest before they got to the priest. Because they're not just going to show up to the priest in their leprosy, with their leprosy. So they were convinced that somehow, some way, Jesus was going to heal them before they ever got to the priest. And that's exactly what he does. Look at the very end of verse 14. It says, and as they went, meaning as they're on their way to the priest, it says, they were cleansed. Then look what happens there in verse 15. Then one of them... When he saw that he was healed, he turned back. Meaning he didn't continue on to the priest to inspect him and all that stuff. Instead, he turns back to Jesus. And it says, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And then Luke adds this little comment here. Now, he was a Samaritan, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. Then look at how Jesus responds there in verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? The word foreigner there is a reference to this heathen, this this pagan. And that's how Samaritans were viewed in Jesus' day. They They weren't Jews, they weren't Gentiles, they were Jew and Gentiles. They were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and, and half-Gentile. Because of that, then the Jewish people considered them to be unclean. And because they were unclean, they were separated and outside the people of God and outside the covenant and the promises of God. So what that means then, put all this together, is that this man who returned had two whammies against him, two strikes against him. Not only was he had leprosy and therefore unclean and separated out from among society. But secondly, he was a Samaritan and he was unclean for that reason as well. Yet, of the ten lepers who were healed, he was the only one, the one who had two strikes against him, the Samaritan leper. Of all the ten, he was the only one that turned around and turned back, praising God, falling at the feet of Jesus, and giving him thanks. And the reality of that then disturbs Jesus, right? He's like, what's everybody else? The least they could have done is like write a thank you note and send it with you. They didn't even do that. Like, are they not grateful? Like, I mean, did, did they not understand what I did for them? Now I cleanse them and heal them and, and the implications of that now, like they can be reunited with friends and family. They can worship God again. They can be with the people of God again. They can, they're with society again. Like, do they not, they don't care. Are they not thankful? Where, where are they? Then look what Jesus tells him in verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you 
well. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. If you have an ESV translation, you might note that there's a footnote at the very end of verse 19, at the very end of those words, your faith has made you well. There's a, there's a footnote there. If you trace that footnote down to the very bottom of the page, it gives you another way that those last words of verse 19 has made you well. It gives you another way that those words can be translated. That instead of translating those words at the very end of verse 19, has made you well, it could be translated as, has saved you. And I read like 12 different commentaries when it comes to those verses from people who are a lot smarter than me. And they all agree that that's, that in their mind, that that's the best translation of what Jesus is getting at here. He, he's not saying to this one Samaritan leper that your faith has made you well in just like a physical sense. That your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you of your leprosy. Instead, what he, if, if that was the case, that he healed all 10 of them. So that doesn't make this one Samaritan leper unique in any way. But instead, what he's saying is, your faith, not, not the other nine, but your faith, Samaritan leper, has saved you. In other words, the, the, the other 10, all, all 10 of them, they, they were healed physically, right? They were, they were healed of their leprosy. But only one of the 10 was healed and cleansed of their sin. And that one was the Samaritan who turns around and makes a beeline to Jesus and falls at his feet and thanks him. And the whole point of this, like, what's the point? Like, the whole point of this is that Jesus wants to see here is this. You see it on your hand up there, that one of the primary evidences that a person has true saving faith in Jesus is that they are grateful for Jesus. In other words, one of the primary ways we demonstrate that we really have genuine saving faith in Jesus is that we, we're grateful for Jesus. We're thankful for Jesus. We, we, we're, we, we express that toward Jesus. In other words, put all that together. One of the fundamental characteristics of a true, genuine disciple and follower of Jesus is that they're grateful. And particularly, they're thankful and grateful for Jesus. They live with a heart posture of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for them. In other words, gratitude, this is where we need to be examining our hearts, right? Individually and corporately. Gratitude, thanksgiving, is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and not be grateful. You can't be a Christian and not be thankful. That's the point here. And that's the testimony of all of the Bible. And if you think about it, like, that makes sense. Like, of all the people on the face of the earth, the one group of people who should be the most thankful and the most grateful are Christians, are, are disciples and, and followers of Jesus. I, I mean, think about it. Think about this, right? Before Christ, our, our condition, before our, our faith in Jesus, is that we had a condition that was far worse than leprosy. We had a disease that was far worse than leprosy. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually blind. We were by nature of children of wrath. We were doomed to hell. We were enslaved to sin. On and on and on and on and on and on. That was the condition that we had before came to Jesus. But God, in His mercy, and for no other reason, just His mercy, He looks upon us and he lavishes us with grace. He lavishes us with mercy. And he sends Jesus to live the perfect life that you cannot, cannot live. And he died in our place on the cross, taking the judgment that we deserve for our sins. So that now those who trust and place their faith in him will be rescued from the judgment they deserve for all of eternity. And the Christian who has experienced that mercy and who has experienced that grace, 
doesn't just continue to walk along with their everyday normal lives, grumbling and complaining and feeling entitled and all of these things. Instead, they, make a, they turn around and they make a beeline straight to the feet of Jesus. They fall on their face before Him. They can't quit singing and praising Him with thankfulness and, and gratefulness. And so here, here's the question. If you fail to experience that sort of gratefulness anymore, that sort of gratitude anymore, it just doesn't move you anymore. We sing songs like, Jesus, thank you, and your lips are moving, but your heart's not stirred anymore. We sing songs like this living hope we have, and your lips are moving your heart's not moved anymore. You read a story like this about the one leper that came back giving thanks while the other nine didn't. It goes in your head. Doesn't do much in your heart to stir your affections and gratefulness to Christ. Like if, if that's you, then a good question to ask this morning would be why? What's happened? Why am I not experiencing and feeling even? I'm talking about on an emotional level, not just a head level. This sort of gratefulness and thanksgiving that this leper shows here. Is it because you, you just gotten to the point where you take his mercy for granted? You just take it for granted. It's become casual to you. So, so it doesn't move you anymore. Is it because you think you deserve God's mercy? Like, you're a good person. You've done a lot of good things. Look at all the things you've done for God. So he, you're entitled to His mercy. You deserve it. He owes it to you. If anybody deserves His mercy, look at all you've done for Him. You deserve it. Is it because you find yourself often just grumbling and complaining? Focusing on the things that God hasn't done for you? Focusing on the things that you wish he had done for you, but he hadn't, and so you're kind of just angry and bitter and grumbling and complaining and don't have a whole lot of reason to give thanks now? Is it because you're proud? You, you've, you've developed this small view of God and this big view of yourself, and so his mercy just seems really small. It doesn't impress you anymore. Or... This is a question to seriously consider. Or are you not thankful for His mercy because the reality is you've never really experienced it. You're really not a disciple and a Christian who's experienced His mercy and saving faith in Jesus. Whatever the reason, the only way that I know of and the only way I think the Bible teaches that we cultivate this heart of gratefulness, this heart of thankfulness for the Lord's mercy is just by continually preaching the gospel to ourselves. Just continually reminding ourselves, number one, of who God is, how great and big and holy and mighty that God, God, God is, to remind ourselves of the, our condition that the Bible describes of who we are apart from Christ, right? So down here. And then reminding ourselves of the rich mercy and love and forgiveness and grace that this great big God has lavished on puny little us in Christ to now reconcile us together. And to sing that, to, to, to read that, to preach those truths to your head and to your heart, to memorize those verses, to meditate on those verses, to gather together with fellow believers in the church and disciple communities who remind you of that in hopes that the seeds of God's mercy would take root in your heart and grow and flourish into a great tree and a great flower of thanksgiving and gratitude for all that he has done for you in Christ and the mercy that he has shown you. So no matter where you are this morning, that's the ultimate solution. One that you sit on your head, one of the best ways you can grow in your thankfulness toward God is by preaching the gospel to yourself and remembering the great mercy God has shown you in Christ, which leads them, so that's characteristic number one. Disciples of Jesus are grateful, thankful 
for the Lord's mercy. Secondly, disciples of Jesus are ready then for the Lord's return. Ready for the Lord's return. This is what we see next there starting in verse 20. So Jesus, he's just healed these 10 lepers. Only one comes back to give thanks. And then here's what happens next in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the Pharisees, these are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They come up to Jesus and they ask him, I, I think this is a, is a sincere question. They ask him when the kingdom of God is going to come. And this would have been a normal question for Jews to ask and for Jews to consider in Jesus' day that every, every Jew in that day, they knew their Old Testament. And so they longed for, they anticipated the day in which God would send this Messiah King that he had promised in the Old Testament to this earth to defeat the enemies of God's people and to establish this reign and rule and kingdom of God here on this earth that was characterized characterized by perfect justice, perfect peace, and perfect righteousness. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus, when is this going to come? And I love Jesus' response here. You notice what his response is? He's like, guys, hey, come here, guess what? It's here! Like, it's already here. Like, it's, it's right in front of your face. He doesn't laugh at them, I don't think. But like, it's right in front of your face. It's in the midst of you. Some of your translations might read, it's in you. It's probably better translated, it's in the midst of you, meaning it's here. Which the Pharisees are blind to it. It's here. Meaning where the promised Messiah King is, it's where God's kingdom is. So since the promised Messiah is here, then his kingdom is here and it's standing right in front of the Pharisees' face and they're so religiously blind, they don't even see it. Starting in verse 22 then, Jesus kind of makes a sharp right-hand turn or left-hand turn. Not too sharp, just a little curve, not, not too sharp. But what he begins to do in verse 22 is he begins to, he, he makes a switch here. He switches from talking about his first coming and, and when he's going to usher in God's kingdom and inaugurate God's kingdom. And starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter, he begins to talk about not his first coming, but his second coming. And when he's going to return and when he's going to come back and when he's going to consummate God's kingdom and judge the earth. And as he talks about this, as he talks about, begins to explain his second coming and and he begins to explain and tell, tell his disciples what it's going to be like, what they can expect. He begins to, to give them some descriptions and, and characteristics of what they can expect when, when he comes a second time so they're not surprised, but so they're prepared and so they're ready for this second coming. And as we, we go along here in verse 22, really through the end of verse 37, he's going to give four what I would call just characteristics of his second return, of his second coming. And the first characteristic he gives is this. You see this on your hand out there. He says that his return will be impossible to miss. It's going to be impossible to miss. Look at verse 22 there. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so what he's saying there is that he's just telling his disciples straight up, you're not going to be around. When I return... Second coming, when I return, you, you guys aren't going to be around. Look at verse 23. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. In other words, Jesus is warning them. He's saying, you're going to have all these people that are going to tell you that the Messiah, that I've come secretly, and I'm, and I'm hanging out in some shack in the middle of Idaho. When you hear rumors like that, don't believe it. It's not true, right? He didn't tell them Idaho. This was like 2,000 years ago, but I'm trying to bring a contemporary version here. But here's why he tells them, don't believe those rumors that I secretly come down and I'm hiding out somewhere. 
Look at verse 24. For, here's the reason, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Have any of you been out late at night, dark sky, and seen lightning just flash and, and cover the sky? Remember one time driving, uh, I was in California in college, driving to Arizona. It's a long story, won't bore you with the details, but we're out in the middle of the desert. There isn't anything to be seen, anything to be found, and they're just lightning strike after lightning strike after lightning strike. I literally thought it was 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It was so bright. And Jesus is saying that's, that's what his, his second coming is going to be, be like. In other words, it's not going to be a secret. <laughs> It's going to be clear. It's going to be visible for everyone to see. Just like lightning, lighten up a sky, so is the return of the Son of Man. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know it. You're not going to be staken. It's not going to be a secret. It's going to be obvious for everybody to see. Secondly, then, he says, see this on your head, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be unexpected. That's what he says next. Look at verse 26. For just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Then look at verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he brings up these two illustrations here, there are these two examples from the Old Testament. And in both of these examples, what are the people doing? Just going about their normal activity, everyday things that they do in life. They're eating, they're drinking, they're buying stuff, they're going to work, they're selling stuff, they're getting married. So they're just the normal, everyday things of, of life. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, God comes in judgment and destroys most of them. Like, there's no advanced warning. You, remember, you know that tornado siren? What's that tornado siren for? To give you a warning. There's a tornado coming. The weatherman gets on the, gets on the TV, right? Weather woman, weatherman, tells you, hey, here's tracking the storm. Okay, it's, it's here. You got, you got Overland Park. It's got three, three minutes, you know. That's not going to happen. Your iPhone's not going to go off with a counter, with a clicker, 10 minutes. 959, 958, 957, 950, you know. It's, it's going to come out of nowhere. Literally. You're like, but I, I was taught. No, it's going to come out of nowhere. Like, in the next two seconds, he could come. Okay, or the next five minutes. Like, he, he could come. And I'm not, like, I'm not, that was fun. But I mean, we're, this is serious. Out of nowhere, going about your normal everyday life, boom, it's, you mean not even one second of a word? No. Not even a half a second, no. Not even a millisecond, no. You mean just wham, bam, there it is, yep. We're not, this, yeah, keep going. It will mean, third, it will mean divine judgment. Again, this, this is one of the reasons why Jesus uses these two examples, right, of, of Noah and Lot from the Old Testament. Like in, in both instances, we don't have time to go look at, at these passages there in, in Genesis, but... God was patient. He, he provided warning after, after warning after, after warning that judgment was coming. And what did the people in, in both of those days do to those warnings? They just shrugged their shoulders. They didn't believe him. Some made-up fairy tale. It isn't really going to happen. It's a scare tactic. Just trying to scare people into heaven. That's all this is. Until one day what happened? The rain started to fall, fire started to fall, flood came, Sodom was burned up. A few of them were rescued, a few of them were saved, not many, just, just a few. And the rest of them were burned up, drowned, died, and were destroyed in judgment. 
And Jesus is saying, those are just a shadow of the judgment that's to come when he comes. Third, or fourth then, it will mean separation forever. Separation forever. I'm going to come back and we'll look at verses 31 through 33 here in just a minute. But look at verse 34 and what Jesus says there. He says, I tell you, in that night, talking about the night that Jesus returns, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. I don't have time to dive into all of this completely, like who's taken and who's left, okay? Are the people who are rescued and saved, are they the one that are taken? Or are the people who are judged and doomed, are they the one taken? Well, now, it, ultimately, when it comes to the point that Jesus is making here, it doesn't ultimately matter. His point's still the same, okay? I believe, based upon what he says in Matthew in particular and in a couple other places in Scripture, I, I would lean toward him saying that, that those who are taken are the ones who are taken away to judgment. And those who are left are those who are left to reign and rule in his kingdom forever. That's how I would take it. You can disagree with me. But his point here is still the same. But just imagine what he's saying here, okay? Like, we're not playing games. You got two people, two spouses going to bed at night. Just a normal night. Like every other night, they get in bed together to go to sleep. And while they're sleeping, sound asleep at night... Jesus comes suddenly, unexpectedly. One of them is snatched out and taken to judgment. And the other is left there to reign and rule with God, with Jesus in God's, in God's kingdom. Just a normal night. Normal sleep. Or there were two workers, Co-workers, right? Think about who you work with, working side by side together, cubicles next to each other, working on the same project together, exchanging emails with each other. Normal day at work, working on the project together, and suddenly, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, the man or the woman, imagine this, that you're working with at work on the same project, taken away to judgment place of eternal conscious torment forever. And, you, and there you are, reigning and ruling in God's kingdom. The, the reality of that then caused the disciples to ask this question. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, where, Lord? And my interpretation of this is that they're asking, where are they taken, Lord? Where, where are they being taken to, Lord? And look at Jesus' answer. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You see what he's saying here? Where are they, Lord? Just look for the vultures. Because wherever you find those vultures circling, right underneath them, you're going to find a bunch of dead, destroyed bodies who've, who've been judged. That's where they'll be. Like, here's the thing. Like, you don't preach a passage of Scripture. You don't read a passage of Scripture like this with a smile on your face. This isn't a game. Like, this isn't make-believe. These aren't scare tactics. Like, you can believe whatever you want to. You can ignore and say, that day's not coming. Those people are foolish. This isn't really going to happen. Yeah, I'll let, just trying to scare people in the kingdom. And you, you can believe that all you want. The reality is that day is coming. Like there is, and here's the question, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? And does your, do, do you live your life as you really believe that? Or is it just this nice theoretical, theological truth that is out here while the rest of your life is lived here, but there's no connection between the two? Because the reality is this. If we really, really, really believe this, that there is a God who created the world who one day is sending Jesus back to this world 
not to save it and to rescue it like he did the first time, but to judge it? Just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah in Noah's day? And to destroy and to unleash the full fury of God's wrath upon it? Like if you really believe that, and if you really believe there, that, that day can come suddenly and unexpectedly without any advanced warning, like if you really believe that, then that should change everything about our lives. Everything about how you work, everything about your marriage, everything about how you live as a single, everything about parenting, how you raise your kids, everything about how you go to school, everything about the urgency you have to live on mission, everything, everything. And so then if that's true, then, then how should that cause us to respond? And that's Jesus' point here. That Jesus tells us to respond to this truth, to these truths about his second coming, his return, by telling us we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to live in such a way that we're not surprised when that day comes. Which then begs the question, how do we do that? How do we ensure that we're ready and prepared for the day that Jesus is going to come back and judge this world? He tells us, we'll end with this, three ways to ensure, he tells us within this passage, three ways to ensure that we're ready for his return. The first way is this, see this on your handout. Don't be consumed with and distracted by the ordinary daily routines of this life. Again, this was the problem in Noah's day and Lot's day, right? In, in those two examples, if you read through that again, Jesus doesn't say they weren't ready because they were living in sin and were a bunch of evil, wicked people. They were living in sin, a bunch of evil and wicked people, but that's not what he's highlighting here. Instead, what he's highlighting here is you got a bunch of people who are just busying themselves with the everyday normal routines of everyday life. And because of that, they weren't ready. That should be a warning for every individual within the life of our church. Most of us aren't a bunch of evil, wicked people who are just neglecting the Lord and just saying, forget you, I'm going to live however I want and engrossed in sin. A bunch of us, though, are consumed with and distracted by the ordinary everyday things of this, of this life. We're getting little Sally to ballet practice, little Johnny to football practice. We're helping kids with homework. We're homeschooling. We're working at a job. We're buying groceries. We're doing this and that and that and that. Just trying to, I mean, the to-do list just to like live in this world, it's a long list, Right? Mowing the yard. Yeah, I mean, just, it's a long list just to survive and live in the world. And Jesus is saying there's a way to do that in such a way that you can be so engrossed and consumed and focused, distracted by all those things that when he comes, you're not even ready. That doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to stop buying groceries. I'm going to stop being a parent. I'm going to leave my marriage, I'm going to um, stop mowing the yard, and I'm going to quit my job as soon as we get out of here. Like, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that there's a way to do those things with a perspective toward eternity. There's a way to do those things with, with your eyes and your heart set on the kingdom of God. There's a way to do those things with your heart set on Jesus and Him coming back. And there's also a way to do those things in which you neglect all of those things and you're just consumed and so stressed out and busy and distracted by all these things. Eternity, the kingdom, the Lord, Jesus, his return is the last thing on your mind. Second then, don't grow overly attached to anything in this world. Don't grow overly attached to anything in this world. We see this specifically there in verse 31. Look there with me. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Then he says this, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? You remember what happened to her? She, she escaped Sodom, right? 
before it, before it burned to the ground and God destroyed it. But as the city was going up in flames and as, as that city was being consumed, what did she do on her way out? She turned around and she looked back. And as she looked back, what happened? God turned her into a pillar of salt. You see, for, for Lot's wife, her body was outside of Sodom, but her heart wasn't. Her heart was still there. And because her heart was still there, God judged her, turned her into a pillar of salt. And that's why she looked back. And that's the warning here that he's giving them in verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Just like, just like Lot's wife, right? And likewise, let the one who is in the field not, not turn back. Don't, don't look back. In other words, what, what Jesus' warning of is, is that on that day he returns, you, there could be this tug of war in your heart. This tug of war going on when it comes to the affections in your heart, when it comes to what you truly treasure in your heart. He comes, yeah, you're excited. Yes, the kingdom. Jesus is here, Yes. Can't wait. Been waiting for this day. But at the same time, if you're really honest, you wish you could play one more round of golf. Or at the same time, if you're honest, you wish that you could get married first. You wish you could have kids first. Yeah, I want the kingdom, but can I take my TV with me? I want the kingdom, but there's these things on my bucket list that, oh man, I, I still really want to go see the Grand Canyon. Like, can I just, I just give me a little glimpse? And there's this tug of war. There's not this single-minded, wholehearted devotion where we treasure Jesus, where we treasure his kingdom above all things. And so when he comes, we're so enraptured by that. It's just, yes, I just, just want you. Instead, we're like, yes, I want you, but I want this and you. And It's like, if that's the case, you're not ready. <laughs> and the reality is this. It's, we, we, sh- we can't wait until that day to be ready. We have to be ready now. And so as all these things are happening in our lives, as we feel this tug of war happening in our lives today, right? Yes, I love Jesus, but I really love this. I treasure Jesus, but I really like this. I love this, but I really want this. And all those times, just remember this, those words there. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. And let that serve as a warning for us to not be consumed, to not be obsessed with, to not be overly attached to anything in this world. So that leads to the third most important way to prepare. It's this. Trust in Jesus alone to rescue you. This right here, that's what's ultimately going to determine whether or not you're spared from judgment on on that day. It's not going to matter how many religious deeds you've done. It's not going to matter how many religious activities you were involved in. It's not going to matter how good a person you were or how sincere you were or any of those things. All those things are good and well, but none of those things are ultimately going to matter on the day that Jesus returns in judgment. Instead, all that's going to matter on that day is what you did with Jesus. Do, Do you believe that Jesus came a first time to take the judgment that you deserve for your sins that you deserve on the, on the last day when he comes? Are you trusting in that? Do you believe that the only hope that you have to be spared and rescued on that last day when he comes is because he took that judgment for you. He took the full fury of God's wrath on himself in your place as your substitute the first time he came. And he was raised from the dead three days later conquering sin and conquering death. And so then on the day that Jesus returns in judgment, when he looks at you and says, why should I spare you? You're not going to ask that, by the way. But if he asks that, you can say, you shouldn't. I deserve deserve God's judgment. I deserve the judgment that you came to pour out upon the world. But I, my only hope for being rescued from the judgment that you came to bring is you, is Jesus.
you took my place. You took my judgment. You bore my wrath for me. And that is my only hope for being rescued on this day. I trust in you. My only hope is in you. My relying exclusively only in you. So the way we prepare ourselves and ready, get ourselves ready for that day isn't by preparing charts. It's not by going to prophecy conferences and things of that nature. It's not by listening to this guru or that guru on the end times. They don't know, and I don't know. But the only way that you prepare yourself for that day is by preparing your heart and by trusting alone in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, we are a people who don't deserve anything other than to be swept away with the people in the days of Noah and to be consumed with fire like those in the days of Lot. That is what we have earned. That is what we deserve. And that is what should be rightfully ours. But somehow, for some unknown reason, in your mercy and in your grace, you decided to look at us and shower us and lavish us with mercy and send Jesus to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it, and we praise you for it. And so, Lord, I pray that as a reality of that mercy that you've richly lavished upon us, I pray that the reality of that would compel our hearts to not be distracted by the ordinary, everyday things in this life, to not be overly attached to the things of this world, but to rest ourselves in the finished work and blood of Jesus. And the result of that, that we would run to you, giving you praise, and run to the feet of Jesus, falling at our, on our face, thanking him with gratitude and gratefulness for the mercy that you have richly lavished upon us. Pray that that would be true in our lives individually, but pray that that would be true for us corporately and collectively as a church as well. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.